Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 107, Gorbachev on Top of a Heaping Mess of Things. Last time, we recounted Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev's rise up through the ranks to his position in Moscow on the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Now, before we move on, I want to remind everyone of the new Russian Rulers History blog site at www. Dot RussianRulersHistory.com. I've added lots of content, which will be expanding every week. Add your email address to subscribe to it with the assurance that I will never give it out to anyone. Now, back to Gorbachev. Mikhail Sergeyevich began to settle down to his new job in the Central Committee with gusto, working 12 to 15 hours a day. But there were problems that he saw that made him really concerned. The main issue was the pushback he received whenever he tried to come up with different solutions to problems plaguing the Soviet Union. As Gorbachev puts it in his memoirs, quote, In the beginning, my active participation in the activities of the Central Committee's Secretariat and my discussion of certain problems were met with misgivings by my colleagues. Some of them considered me an upstart. In every way possible, I resisted being drawn into the machine to become another victim of routine subordination. But it was easier said than done. As a Krykom secretary in Stavropol, I had enjoyed much greater freedom than I did here, even though I now joined the top ranks of power. In 1979, Gorbachev, who was assigned to make sure agricultural goals were being met, determined that this was just not going to happen that year and that grain purchases would have to be made from abroad. He wrote to the Politburo, and a little while later, he and Brezhnev talked about the harvest at an award ceremony for some Soviet cosmonauts. Gorbachev made some suggestions on how to transport some of the harvest when Andrei Kosygin angrily broke in and said, what has happened here is that the Agriculture Department has sent a memorandum to the Politburo and Gorbachev signed it. He and his department have yielded to parochial considerations, but we have no more hard currency to buy grain. We should not be so liberal, but should be firmer in demanding that the state procurement plan be fulfilled. Tension filled the air until Brezhnev was summoned to the Catherine Hall to present the cosmonauts their awards. Gorbachev remembers how depressed he was, worried that he had made a critical mistake. He was concerned that Kosygin had felt slighted by him, which was not a good thing to do. But he was put to ease when Brezhnev called him later that day and asked him if he were upset. Gorbachev replied that he was, and thought that he was in the right. Brezhnev told him, quote, You behaved correctly. Don't worry. We should indeed see that the government occupies itself more with agriculture. This episode was a watershed moment for Gorbachev, as members of the Politburo took notice of this young man's bravery and standing up to Kasigan. A motion was made to lift Gorbachev to a position in the Politburo. Suzlov called Mikhail Sergeyevich to tell him, quote, We had a discussion. A plenum is coming. It is intended to strengthen your position. There has been a proposal to make you a Politburo member, but I voiced opposition and I want you to know about it. I shall recommend you as a candidate member to the Politburo. That will be better. You will have secretaries working with you 
with 5, 10, 15 years experience. Why create needless strain? Now to all of these out there, uh, to clarify what a candidate member is, it's a person who would sit in on Politburo meetings and he could speak, but they were not allowed to vote. Gorbachev talked about some of the, quote, absurd situations created in the Politburo under Brezhnev because of the prevailing attitude that everyone had their little um, patch of land and no one should overstep it. As he put it, it might seem that all ceremonies should be cast aside when colleagues and comrades gather, but no, each member had an assigned place. On the right of Brezhnev was Suzlov, on the left Kosygin, or after his retirement, Tikhanov. Next to Suzlov sat Kirilenko, then Plesh, Solmotsnenev, Ponomarev, and Demichev. Across from the table and next to Kosygin was Grishin, and after him Gromyko, Andropov, Yustinov, Chernenko, and finally Gorbachev. In a meeting with Brezhnev, Gromyko, and Yustinov, Gorbachev relates how he described the bleak forecast for the Soviet agricultural future. Countless errors were made in how the land was treated from not having proper drainage systems in place, which caused the land to increase in salinity, to the creation of hydroelectric plants that turned 14 million hectares of great growing land into lakes. He also realized that the way gas and oil were pumped out of the ground and transported created huge dead areas which could never be reclaimed. Military bases of vast sizes also took a large chunk out of circulation. But the biggest issue in Gorbachev's eyes was the treatment of the peasant farmers as second-class citizens. As with Tsara times, the farming peasant was a lower-class citizen. To the communists, they looked down on them as they were not as supportive of their movement as the industrial workers had been. Because of this, the infrastructure in agricultural areas was terribly neglected, so much so that trying to make up for it was extremely difficult. For this reason, many peasants gave up on the land and moved to the cities to try their luck there. Investment in the agricultural sector was vital to feeding the Soviet people, but the cry from the Politburo was the same, we have no money. Well, the reason there was no money was because the military took up so much of the spending that little was left for the infrastructure of the nation. Gorbachev, he remembered a conversation he had with Bybakov, chairman of the state planning committee of the Council of Ministers, where they spoke about asking the Politburo to prove provide some more funds from and move it from the military to the agricultural sector. Babakov asked Gorbachev, quote, Would you be willing to raise this question? No, I wouldn't, replied Gorbachev. You see, I wouldn't do it either, Babakov responded. The reason was they knew that if you asked the question, your career would be over. Only Brezhnev could suggest that, and that was never going to happen. Life in Moscow as a high-ranking party member may have been filled with more creature comforts than the common folk, but everything was not peachy keen, according to Gorbachev. Brezhnev, being a suspicious man, discouraged Central Committee and Politburo members visiting each other socially. He remembered a conversation he had with Yuri Andropov. Quote, Today we are arranging a meal in Stavropol style, and, as in the good old days, we invite you and Tatiana Filipnovna to dinner. 
Yes, those were the days. But I have to decline your invitation, Mikhail, Andropov responded. Why? Gorbachev asked. Because tomorrow there would be all kind of small talk. Who? Where? Why? What was said? What are you saying, Yuri Vladimirovich? Gorbachev questioned. No, that's the way it really is. While we were still on our way to you, Leonid Ilyich would hear about it. I say this, Mikhail, first and foremost, for your sake. The reality of the situation hit Mikhail and Ryza. From that moment on, they could invite old and new acquaintances over, but never any members of the Central Committee or the Politburo. It was a strange feeling that one couldn't be friends with your co-workers, but such was the paranoia of the Soviet leadership, no doubt bred under Stalin's rule. We now move to early 1982, where news of Mikhail Andreevich Suslov's death created a power struggle to become the second secretary directly behind Brezhnev. With Leonid Ilyich's health deteriorating, everyone knew that whoever got that position would likely become the next leader of the Soviet Union. Chernenko and Andropov were the natural successors to Suslov, so they began to maneuver themselves into position. Brezhnev would go in and out of lucidity, but by March 1982 he made a sig selection of Andropov. As was Leonid's style, he placed one of his loyalists into the position of head of the KGB, which Andropov had to relinquish once he assumed the second secretary's job. With Andropov's elevation, Gorbachev rose alongside. But not all was settled as to the succession issue. Chernenko, being Brezhnev's head of staff, increasingly tried to isolate his boss, hoping to gain influence in the choice of who would replace him. Andropov, sensitive to the situation, made his own alliances and deals. A great deal of tension was obvious at every plenum meeting. The problem with all of this intrigue was that nothing was getting done trying to solve the problems faced by the Soviet people. No one had any ideas, or if they did, they were scared to make them public. Everyone was sitting on pins and needles waiting for the next shoe to drop, namely, Brezhnev's death. On November 10, 1982, Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev passed away in his sleep. Gorbachev remembers receiving a call summoning him to Andropov's office, which he knew was serious, as Mikhail was with an important Slovak delegation. Quote, Andropov wants you urgently. He knows that you are busy with a delegation, but please apologize to them. Suggest a break and go to his office right away. Gorbachev came into the office and was told what had happened. He responded by telling Andropov, Well, this is a decisive moment for Staraya Ploshad. A decision has to be taken, and I think it will directly concern you. Andropov said nothing. Gorbachev then asked him, Have you met with the inner circle? His mentor nodded yes. Then Mikhail said, Whatever happens, you cannot dodge the responsibility. I shall strongly support your candidacy. Gorbachev had decided to ride the coattails of Andropov very carefully, and it was beginning to pay off. Yuri Vladimirovich trusted Gorbachev and respected his intellect and many of his ideas. But before Mikhail Sergeyevich could move up, 
Andropov had to clear house of those people he felt were threats to his policy changes that he had in mind. First to go was the Minister of Internal Affairs, Shushelikov. Andropov knew that this agency was entirely corrupt, but he was unable to do anything until after Brezhnev's death. Next to go was the KGB head, Fedorchuk, followed by the removal of the now senile Politburo member Kirilenko. Andropov then began to install his people into the Politburo, much to the chagrin of Chernenko. It was at this time that Gorbachev, along with Ryazkov and Dolgik, were given the task to determine what the most important economic issues facing the USSR were. Near the end of 1982, Andropov hinted what he had in mind for Gorbachev. He suggested, quote, You know what, Mikhail? Don't limit your work to the agrarian sector. Try to look at other aspects. In general terms, act as if you had to shoulder all the responsibility one day. I mean it. Gorbachev understood what he meant, and he took it to heart. Delving into determining how to get the Soviet Union out of its economic doldrums, a request was made to see the Soviet budget. And Dropov responded by saying, Nothing doing. You're asking too much. The budget is off-limits to you. Gorbachev then admits, and this is quite surprising to me, that he only found out about the secrets held in the budget the day before he resigned from the presidency. He learned that the budget was a fraud and a grand Ponzi scheme. As he puts it, I knew the greatest secret, namely that our budget was full of holes. It was continually replenished by the savings banks. In other words, money was drawn from the savings of citizens and by raising the internal debt. Meanwhile, it was officially proclaimed that the revenues always exceeded expenditure and that all was very well balanced. Basically, the Soviet Union was broke, just like my Russian history professor, Dr. Paul Average, had said to his students and me in 1976 when I took his class. In March of 1983, a clear attempt to show that Gorbachev was Andropov's choice as his successor was made when the general secretary selected Mikhail to deliver the report on Lenin celebrating the Bolshevik leader's 113th birthday. The country was now on notice that Gorbachev was a man to watch. In May of 1983, Gorbachev was sent to Canada to meet with their Secretary for Agriculture, Eugene Whelan, and Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. Mikhail was impressed with how Canada's farms worked until he learned that the entire system of agriculture in Canada and the U.S. was dependent on subsidies and credits. Similar situations between a socialist country and its capitalist adversaries was apparent to Gorbachev. By the summer of 1983, it became apparent that Andropov was seriously ill due to failing kidneys. Everyone knew that the end was near, so the political intrigues to determine who would succeed him were gaining steam. Many of the old-time Brezhnev cronies were almost gleeful as they hated the reforms and arrests Andropov ordered to stop the corruption that was destroying the country. Chernenko began to chair the Politburo meetings when Andropov could no longer make them. With his health deteriorating rapidly, he tried to make Gorbachev his successor through a message sent to the Politburo. Mikhail Sergeyevich claims to not know whether this was true or not, 
but witnesses to the redacting of the part of the message claims otherwise. When Andropov died, Chernenko made sure that he was going to be the next general secretary of the USSR. When news came of Andropov's death, Gorbachev was deeply moved as he had great admiration of his boss. He felt that the man was truly honorable and cared deeply about his people. At the funeral, many cried, but others were clearly happy. While Gorbachev felt that Dmitry Fyodorovich Ustinov was the best man to take control, Chernenko had already set things up for his own ascendancy. But what kind of a man was Chernenko in 1983? As Gorbachev puts it in his memoirs, quote, Whom did we acquire in the post of general secretary? Not merely a seriously sick and physically weak person, but, in fact, an invalid. It was common knowledge and immediately visible with the naked eye. It was impossible to disguise his infirmity and the shortness of breath caused by emphysema. The doctor who accompanied Margaret Thatcher to Andropov's funeral soon afterwards published a prognosis on Chernenko's lifespan and erred by only a few weeks. Gorbachev became aware of a movement by Central Committee and Politburo members to find some dirt on him to prevent him from becoming the next general secretary. But little came up. Tikhanov was his main opponent and made that clear at a meeting of the Politburo as Gorbachev was now chairing some of the meetings because of Chernenko's deteriorating health. Tikhanov said, I don't understand why we have to give the chairmanship of the secretariat to Gorbachev. As far as we know, Mikhail Sergeyevich deals with agrarian matters. I am afraid that the secretariat would be transformed into a body considering agrarian issues and used by him to exert pressure. Distortions would be inevitable. But Gorbachev had a powerful ally in the person of Ustinov, who came to his support, which proved key. Gorbachev was now the de facto chairman of the Politburo. Ustinov had a lot of influence with Chernenko, which further solidified Gorbachev's position. Despite pressure from Gromyko, Grishin, and Tikhanov, things were pointing to Mikhail Sergeyevich's ascension to the top. Gorbachev began to travel and met with the leader of Great Britain, Margaret Thatcher. The world began to know of this young upstart. But when he was in England, that bad news came. Ustinov had died. Gorbachev's opponents, especially Tikhanov, saw an opening. On March 10, 1985, Konstantin Chernenko died. Immediately, a Politburo meeting was called for at 11 p.m. that night. A Central Committee meeting was called for, but the Politburo needed to make a decision. As Gorbachev remembers things, Suddenly, Grishin spoke up. Why the hesitation about the chairman? Everything is clear. Let's appoint Mikhail Sergeyevich. Gorbachev himself suggested that things not be rushed. He talked it over with Medvedev, Yakolev, and Bolden. It was a time for reflection, and the one person he trusted the most was his wife, Riza. He met with her in their garden at 4 a.m., we felt that their discussion would be safe. While he didn't recall much of what was said, he vividly remembered the last things he told her. Quote, you see, I have come here with the belief 
that I shall be able to accomplish something. But so far, there was not much I, much I could have done. Therefore, if I really want to change something, I would have to accept the nomination. If it's made, of course. We can't go on living like this. He knew that the Soviet people could no longer live the way they were, and the government could not either. Something had to change. The Politburo could no longer trot out some old goat to lead the party for a few months before dying. Gorbachev had to take the reins and shake things up. The next day, the head of the KGB, Chebrikov, approached Gorbachev to tell him that Tikhanov was against his becoming general secretary. But Chebrikov wondered, did he really expect him to get the job? There were many who were opposed, but what other choice did they have? Gromyko was against Gorbachev, as he felt that he and he alone should lead in foreign affairs, and was jealous of Gorbachev's visit to Great Britain. But Gromyko was already 75, and not in any shape to fight. Ligachev and Ryskov, two of Gorbachev's staunchest allies, rallied the party members to their side. One has to note, though, that Gorbachev had not yet said yes to taking the job. As he notes in his memoirs, he was wary of taking the position if he only received a small majority of the vote. He needed a unanimous one. And it was Andrei Grumiko, of all people, who placed Gorbachev's name into the floor, followed by Tikhanov and Grishin. The die was cast, and Gorbachev was nominated by the Politburo. Now the Central Committee needed to approve the nomination. Gromyko gave a stirring speech in support. His nomination was met by thundering applause. Gorbachev now had to give a speech spelling out his plans, but he also had to be cautious so as not to scare anyone. He was not yet strong enough to present the changes he was to engineer in the coming years. It was in this speech that we first hear him use the word glasnost, which means transparency, when talking about the Soviet and party government. As for the arms race, which was draining the country of its resources, he said, We want to stop and not to continue the arms race, and, consequently, propose to freeze nuclear arsenals and stop further deployment of missiles. We want a genuine and large-scale reduction of accumulated armaments, and not the creation of new arms systems. As Gorbachev notes, there was a sense, an intuition, that an era was coming to a close. In less than three years, three general secretaries, leaders of the country, had died. So had many of the prominent Politburo leaders. Kosygin died at the end of 1980. In 1982, it was Suzlov's turn. In November, Brezhnev. In May 1983, Pesh. In February 1984, Andropov. In December, Ustinov. In March 1985, Chernenko. All this was fraught with symbolic meaning. The very system was dying away. Its sluggish, senile blood no longer contained any vital juices. I realized the weight of responsibility I had to shoulder. Next time, we begin to recount the turbulent six-year reign of the last Communist Party leader as we count down to the end of the USSR. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. 
Don't forget to visit the blog site at www.russianrulershistory.com or on Facebook, where you can ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. So now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.